Hello and welcome to Drinks with Tony, where I get to talk to authors and we just conversate. Our guest this week is Duke Haney, and I need to confess something about this episode. We had to tape twice. Yes, and it was my fault. On our first session, we taped for two hours, which is kind of unheard of. I don't know where the time went, but we did tape for two hours. Taping for two hours, I found out the hard way that my recorder will just delete the recording if I go more than two hours. So, Duke graciously met me again so we can get a solid taping. So, hey, the first one was like pre-production. This one was getting it in the can. Hi, my name is Tony, and it only took me 38 episodes into the reboot of Drinks with Tony to lose a recording. Enjoy the show. Hi, it's Duke Haney, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. And on the Drinks with Tony show. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Duke Haney. He is the author of Death Valley Superstars. Occasionally, oh my God, my, <laughs> oh my Fatal Adventures in Filmland. Yes. Okay, and then also Sub- Subversia yes. and Band for Life. He's also a TV writer and actor and on that end known as Daryl Haney. Yes. Duke, how are you? You're a little grouchy, eh? I am a little grouchy. I just want to mention that I was never really a TV writer. Uh, the only thing I ever wrote for television was um, some uh, softcore porn, uh, which I was stupid enough to put my name on. Uh, this was uh, just before there was an IMDb, or be, before everybody had discovered the IMDb. I didn't think that anybody would ever go back and take notice of the fact that I had written these stupid things. Lady Chatterley Stories was the name of one of those shows. Uh, so I just plopped my name on it. I didn't give a fuck, you know. And then, lo and behold, uh, it went up on my, my permanent resume, so to speak. But primarily, I wrote bad movies. That was my claim to fame. Before becoming a neglected novelist and uh, nonfiction writer. <laughs> I, I, those are just... That has to be in your bio, but your bio, neglected, neglected novelist, bad movies. Um, yeah, well, and you worked on uh, you were, was it well, who would, you worked you met Roger Corman. Was that the we talked about this before in our previous interview? But yeah, what what brought you out to Los Angeles? Because you were you were in New York at the time, right? Well, I was a New York actor, uh, and um, I had done a little screenwriting. Um, Alongside my manager, uh, I had a manager who went on to to uh, manage. Um, well, I shouldn't say the name uh, of this uh, phenomenon that he went on to manage, uh, but it was a person who uh, uh, was responsible for a an animated series that everybody in America knows very well. Um, and my manager at the time. Uh, was a coke dealer that's how he basically paid the bills uh essentially that's like uh that's how you finance films too right well he made a film as a director but i don't believe i believe he had stopped the coke business by then i don't believe the film was financed uh uh by his cocaine business um but uh and he was really only supplementing his income with, you know, by dealing cocaine at the time. I mean, he had a, he was actually uh, a waiter. He had various odd jobs, um, and I was his only client. He saw me in acting class and thought I was a great actor. I thought you were going to say his only cocaine client, and then I was going to go, "Wow, you must have done a lot of blow." No, no, his only client is a, <laughs> as a manager. Well, we did do a lot of blow. Okay. Um, you know, I was just a kid and. Um, uh, I didn't really need cocaine. Everybody just assumed I was on it anyway because I was so hyper. Uh, and uh, so it didn't really have any effect on me. Uh, I mean, I was the same, you know, whether I was or wasn't doing coke. Uh, but there were a few nights when we sat up, you know, going through his stash like Scarface. Uh, and he was scarfing down his own stash, you know, and I would literally leave the apartment when I mean, we would sit up all night long. I'd literally leave the apartment, you know, with a nosebleed. 
Um, but um, so he and I collaborated on something. He didn't give me any credit for it. We later had uh, a falling out about that. Um, and uh, uh, that was, I guess, one of the things that led us to terminate our agreement. <laughs> he went on to better things. Uh, I went on to ostensibly better things, which you know, later proved to be worse things. <laughs> um, but it, it, it's all material, right, for, uh, for our writing careers. Well, so I'm told. Um, I guess it has proven to be in my case. Um, but, uh, no, there was a, there's, you know, a, a different drug is related to how I ended up in L.A. I, I um, you know, was living in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and um, a friend of mine and I had gone out. His name was Morphine, actually. His name, he was, that was his nickname from back when he used to do morphine, I guess. And um, we had dropped acid. Um, and I, I came home from dropping acid. Uh, it was Easter Sunday, actually. And, um, and I got this phone call from a guy named Joe Minion who had written After Hours, the Scorsese film. And he had um, flown to L.A. in a great hurry to do a movie for Roger Corman. He was hired over the phone to, do a mo- to direct, write, direct and write a movie for Roger Corman. Uh, and he was allowed to cast anybody he wanted uh, to cast, and I had done a, a student film of his at NYU. Um, so he thought of me, and he called me, you know, while I was coming down off this acid trip to ask if I wanted to head out to L.A. to star in this Roger Corman movie. Um, so I had to borrow the money to get out of here, and then, you know, got off the plane, was picked up by a PA at the airport, um, was driven straight to a uh, costume warehouse for fitting for this movie. We started shooting on Thursday. The movie wasn't even written yet. And um, this costume warehouse, there was nothing like it in New York. I mean, it would, you know, like had like shots of the Bonanza cast on like the walls, you know, uh, people who, who had availed themselves of the warehouse's services in the past. Um, all their costumes were hanging on the racks, you know. Um, it was in the valley, and um, actually, the shirt. One of the shirts I ended up wearing. I remember the the guy who pulled the shirt for me uh, told me that it was uh, originally worn by Treat Williams in uh, a movie he had done for TV about uh, J. Edgar Hoover. So I was wearing J. Edgar Hoover J. Edgar Hoover's shirt um, as played by Treat Williams. For a Roger Corman film that still needed a screenplay. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I ended up writing the screenplay, basically. We needed to have some scenes to shoot on Thursday, and then we were going to have a few days off to write the rest of the script. And I mean, I talk about it in my book. There's a piece in my book uh, uh, about it. And um, so uh, actually, right after the, the warehouse, uh, the PA's Volkswagen Beetle broke down on the freeway. So another head PA had to come pick me up. We were stranded by the side of the freeway at another PA. Somehow, the first PA managed somehow, before cell phones, to call uh, Conqueror New Horizons, Rogers Company, and say, I'm broken down by the side of the freeway. And another PA pulled up and drove me to Rogers' office. Uh, I walked right into the middle of a story meeting with Joe and Roger and some other writer that they had hired. And I basically got that guy fired almost immediately. Um, <laughs> what was the? I mean, was he just not? Was he not cut out to write anything, or was he just not putting in the work? He was a nice guy. Um, we went out to a Mexican restaurant. I mean, how all L.A. is all of this, right? I mean, uh, we we had this meeting with Roger, and um, he said, "Well, I'll let you all discuss the script." And so we went to this Mexican restaurant, and we began to talk about the script and um, Joe's very rough idea of it and I couldn't see how this rough idea would play out into you know a full 90 pages Um, and um, so I began to propose other ideas and it seemed as though every time I proposed an idea the other writer would undercut it somehow and would, would sort of he wouldn't roll with it do you think he was trying to do his own like thing or save his job or was it an ego thing 
No, I don't think so. I think he was just playing devil's advocate. Somebody needed to play that role. Um, and But it just was the wrong moment from my point of view to play it because I, I didn't need somebody to point out why it wouldn't work. I needed other people to say, oh, I, let, let's see if we can make this work. And Joe was down with everything I was saying, but the other guy was like, well, yes, but wouldn't that, you know? And I, so I started to get really nasty to that guy. And I, I basically ended up screaming at him. I mean, I was very, very temperamental in those days. You know, it didn't take much for me to have a temper tantrum. Um, I thought that was a sign of talent. Um, actually, on the movie itself, I, I threw so many tantrums that um, Dan Shore, who was in the film with me, um, started calling me John McEnroe. That was my nickname on the film. I didn't know they were calling me that. It was They were saying it behind my back. They were like, well, there goes John McEnroe again. And, uh, and then eventually it reached my ears. Um, and, um, and Joe and I were no longer in speaking terms by the end of the film because I was just so awful. Um, I mean... Joe was not exactly an angel himself. I mean, he walked off the movie on the last night um, and um, just stormed off, you know, left the set. And, and so it had to be finished the last night of shooting by Anna, the producer, and, and Melita, the assistant director. Uh, so the women took over and finished the job. Um, I think there may be a metaphor in there somewhere. Um, and, um, and uh, yeah. Did, uh, now, did you ever find out what Roger Corman thought of the film? Oh, Roger loved the movie. He loved the ideas. When, we went, when I went in the next day after I'd flown in, we went to Roger, met with him first things. We had to cast it. I mean, I got to, to L.A. on a Tuesday. Um, we were shooting on Wednesday. No, I, may, I think, yeah, no, hold on. It was a Tuesday, yeah. And we, we were shooting on Thursday. And uh, so we needed to cast the film. We needed to cast the, the female lead right away. Um, and there was one other part we... we we had to shoot we were shooting in the you know there was a whorehouse set so we had to shoot we had to cast the lead whore and the metam of the whorehouse metam wang was her name i didn't come up with that name that was actually one the only holdover i think the fired screenwriter it was his idea it was his only holdover in the screenplay and um so roger and i went in uh, or, or Joe and I went in and met with Roger and we, and we said, well, this is what we want to do with the movie. We want to do this. We want to do that. And Roger just loved it because it was very irreverent and crazy. Um, it, it was, yeah, really wild what we had in mind. Um, it didn't come off at all, but it was just, it was sort of like, um, you know, like a, like a, a sort of black comedy, uh, very inspired by uh, uh, Bonnie and Clyde. Uh if, if, if Robert Benton and perhaps Bonnie and Clyde themselves had all dropped acid. And of course, I had only, you know, my acid trip had only finished a few days before, so maybe that, maybe that influenced the direction that, the, uh, that the, uh, the, the script took, so, yeah. Note, note, to, uh, note to screenwriters who want to make it out there, drop acid before you do meetings. Um, yeah, exactly, right before. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, make sure that, uh, you know, like, the, I remember that, you know, this particular time when I dropped acid, I remember um, it was actually the first time. No, wait, maybe it wasn't. Anyway, the first time I dropped that, I thought it was going to be really disappointing because all drugs were usually disappointing to me. You know, I was like, that? That's what everybody's talking about? So I dropped acid and, like, nothing happened. I didn't really know, you know, really kind of what went on. So... I uh, struck a match, and all of a sudden I was like, whoa, look at that flame, man. That's a color I never saw before, and the smell, whoa. So make sure that you bring a match to strike um, right as your meeting is kicking in <laughs> so that you'll be sure to, to get the full effect. I've I've never done acid and the the mo I've only done pot like that. Well, I did I've done coke a couple of times, but like people say like doing acid or shrooms is like a, a, an experience that people should have. Well, I, some people say I don't know. You know, I had a roommate of all things. I mean, this guy was a. He was a model. He was, uh, he, like, he, you know, had been shot by Bruce Weber, you know. And, um, and this guy had done more drugs than anybody I, I think I probably had ever met. And, uh, well, except, ex excluding junkies. I did know a few of them. 
Uh, I was so naive about drugs when I first moved to New York that I didn't even know, I had no idea. I mean, I would know somebody for weeks. Like I was doing a play, uh, Cocteau's Antigone, which I did at uh, Club 57, this famous uh, punk club in New York. Klaus Nomi came out of uh, Club 57. And uh, we were doing this very, very experimental um, production of um, Antigone there. And at least one person in the cast was like a full-on junkie, and I had no idea. You know, it wasn't until much later that I, I saw her actually. It was actually, it was Antigone. Antigone was a junkie. I saw. I came across her really early one morning with her boyfriend. They were both, you know, clearly, you know, dope sick, strung out. I was like, oh shit! I guess that explains a few things, like yeah. her nodding off the middle of rehearsal. <laughs> no, I'm. It was never that extreme with her, but, um, but uh, this roommate of mine um uh i remember that he went out one night and was he did like ecstasy and he came back and was telling me all about ecstasy and we just sort of talked about hallucinogens and i remember he said to me he said you know if you if you live your life in good faith you have nothing to fear i mean he had done acid he had done mushrooms he had, you know done every kind of hallucinogen basically and um and so that interested me. Um, I, I think I thought maybe if I, I did acid, um, it would be a way to discover if I lived my life in good faith. And I decided that night that, in fact, I, I did, I do. And it also opened me to the idea of God again, because I was a pretty... Um, hardcore atheist after my southern up southern baptist upbringing and and um i think doing hallucinogens definitely kind of opened me to the possibility that there that there was a god or could be a god i would say i'm an agnostic now and, I, and that, that's really because of that so for me you know every drug i've ever done has really ultimately um been beneficial to me except alcohol I mean, the only bad experiences I've ever had are on the only legal drug, right, um, or you know, pot is now legal in some places. Um, uh, I mean, I, I, you know, I think it was John Lennon who, who said about pot, it's a giggle, you know, like nothing more than that. Um, I mean, pot, Paul McCartney remained a, a big pothead, but I think John kind of got, got, you know, kind of pot. What for him was kind of a, a fad, you know, and then he moved on to to other things, acid uh, and uh, heroin. Um, I, I, I shot incredibly good pool in pot, so <laughs> oh, yeah. it was good for me in that way. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, every time I did a drug, I ended up becoming very contemplative on it, you know, and, and I did a lot of self-investigation kind of, you know, like I would ask myself a lot of questions and I would always come away from it feeling better about myself you know like doing heroin I mean for example I mean I never shot it but up uh, but it was very prevalent in Yugoslavia where I used to live and and uh, so it was just like a party I mean heroin is not a party drug at all I mean it's almost impossible to talk you know when you're under the influence but somehow people did I couldn't I didn't I didn't know how they were all doing it but but I would try I, I could barely get through a sentence because my tongue was so weighted down but I but you know I became very introspective um, on it and um, and you know and I always as I say came away from drugs feeling you know better about myself somehow like I, you know it, it seemed to confirm that I was living my life in good faith huh, that's cool when were you how long did you live in Yugoslavia um, well I did I did my first movie there um, 30 years ago um, which is amazing to me <laughs> um, and I basically had a nervous breakdown while making that movie um, I won't go into the details of it but um, I came back a complete basket case and it derailed you know I actually I was you know everything was sort of coming together for me right then you know like I yeah I mean everything I mean I was beginning to work you know really consistent. I don't go into this in the book but um I mean, so much of the book is about other people anyway. I should just mention that the book is not an autobiography. This makes it sound, the way I'm talking makes it sound like an autobiography. But, um, but uh, you know, I had 
written, you know, this Friday the 13th movie, <laughs> which I got with, you know, I mean, it just fell into my lap. I had done a movie for Roger, Daddy's Boys, the first movie I did for Roger was about to come out. I had written that. I uh, had written a second movie for Roger that was shooting in Peru. Um, I uh, And then I was shooting this movie in Yugo- Yugoslavia. Um, I was the lead in that. And... Um, and um, I was signed with a really big agency, um, APA, and, you know, there's just, you know, I mean, while I was making the movie in Yugoslavia, somebody, I mean, I was, like, on the front page of the New York Times Arts and Leisure section, you know. I mean, amazing. Somebody mailed me the clip. Um, what's, it, what's it like to get that clip when you're, I mean, that's just, that's got to be huge when you, when you first saw that. Yeah, it was pretty shocking. Yeah. I mean, because, you know, I, I, I read the New York Times every day. Um, you know, in New York, it's a weird thing. Um, but what used to be anyway, it was kind of because, you know, because more exalted type people uh, tended to read the New York Times. And, you know, I mean, a lot of people were carried newspapers in those days. So, you know, you didn't, you didn't see as much, exactly. So you didn't see as many copies of the New York Times being carried as you saw the New York Post and the Daily News. Uh, maybe Newsday. Um, so, I mean, I, I remember I used to go into stores and sometimes people would make these sort of half sarcastic comments and go, oh, the New York Times, you know, like that kind of thing. Um, so the New York Times was, you know, a big deal, obviously, to me. Um, I had ended up already in the Village Voice just sort of by accident. I, I, um, I The first movie I ever did, uh, w- w- uh, I got right after I moved to New York, fell out, also fell out of my lap. It was a Canadian uh, exploitation film called Siege, um, and um, I was riding on the subway one night, I was looking over somebody's shoulder, and there was a little still from Siege in the, in the Village Voice, it was an ad for a fest, film festival, and I was like, and I said, I blurted out a lot, I was like, oh my god, it's me, <laughs> I think a couple of people looked over at me, you know, smiling, actually, and then I'd also been, weirdly enough, I went to the funeral of um, Lee Strasberg, um, I auditioned for the actor's studio, um, and he died like the next day. <laughs> and I went to his memorial service, and a reporter for the New York Post, I, I was walking into the memorial service, and I guess he'd been trying to get people to talk to him, and nobody would. And he had a big badge on that's the New York Post. He's a very nice guy. He was like a young guy. He didn't seem like a scumbag at all. and and. He had this kind of downcast look like nobody will talk to me. And I, so I walked past him and I kind of slowed my gait a bit because I had a feeling he might reach out to me. And he did. And he interviewed me. And I said the most narcissistic thing in the world. I said something to the effect of, um, I'm just sorry he died before he could contribute to my work or something like that. <laughs> and that made it into the magazine? It did. I was writing, once again, I was riding on the subway and I saw a picture of Ellen Burstyn. Uh, it was like Lee Strasberg, Memorial Service for Lee Strasberg. And there was a picture of Ellen Burstyn crying with her head downcast. And, and uh, I kind of sk- I was reading over this guy's shoulder, you know. Uh, it's, and uh, it, it, it said, one of the mourners, Daryl Haney, you know. <laughs> and uh, so I ran out. Of course, I immediately... Uh, you know, picked up an, it was an afternoon edition of the paper. I knew it would be, you know, that they used to do several yeah, editions yeah. a day. So you had to kind of grab it right away before that edition disappeared right. with a more salacious cover, you know. Uh, yeah, any, you know, cover that wasn't salacious enough would be bumped, you know, uh, in the later edition with a more salacious, you know, headless body and topless bar, that kind of thing, oh, you know. Okay. Later in the day so we can get the readers, uh, yeah. <laughs> they were always on the lookout for the most salacious uh, headline and, and uh uh, cover photo possible so um, yeah I, I, I may have wandered far away from the uh, the initial topic here uh, Tony yeah yeah we were talking about uh, the Yugoslavia film how, how long did you spend in Yugoslavia for that um, well I did that movie and then I had a nervous breakdown and I came back and I never wanted to go there ever again yeah. and then um, once again there was sort of a, a fluke situation where I potentially could be offered the lead in a movie being shot in Yugoslavia. This is after Amer- the U.S. had bombed Yugoslavia. 
And I decided that it would be a good thing for me to go back. This is in the year 2000. And um, I thought if I could go back to sort of the scene of the crime, it might be, you know, a good thing for me psychologically. Um, so I um, let it be known that, you know, that if um, they wanted me, they could, you know, they could have me for a song and a dance. And I went back over and that was a great experience that time. So I made the movie um, and then I stayed on for a bit afterward. And then I went back um, again for the premiere, and then um, somewhere in the middle of that, I had an idea for uh, my novel, Band for Life, and and um, so because I could live so cheaply over there, um, you know, with rent like two hundred dollars a month, I decided to move back to, to to write my novel. So I went back for that. So I was spent um, part of two thousand and one and two thousand two over there. Yeah. What, what what part of Yugoslavia? And, and was this was this before it was broken up into uh, Kosovo and um, Bosnia? I mean, and all that. Well, the first time I went was there. Um, it was um, Yugoslavia proper. You know, it was um, you know T- uh, Tito had died. Um, you know, roughly ten years before, um, and. Um, I mean, Yugoslavia means South Slavia, um, and it's it's uh, it was a unification of uh, you know six different um, countries or areas nations, um, and um, our uh, current uh, uh, first lady uh, is awful. It is for me to say that. Um, is from you know one of the uh, those areas, uh, Slovenia. Um, that's the most uh, uh, productive one of them. Uh, Serbia was I, that's where I made my films and lived. Um, they're known to be a bit lazy. They're very they're like Italians. They're kind of um, sensual, um, pleasure loving, um, and. Um, that must have been fun. I mean, did, um, and then what's the language? I mean, is the language like the? What, it, it's not Yugoslavian. There's there's a very or was it specific? Did did you, was English working for you, or did you have to kind of come up with uh, learning a bit of the local? Well, um, I mean, there are different languages spoken in the, the different areas. Um, Serbs speak Serbian or Serbo-Croatian. Uh, Serbian and Croatian are so similar that you know that um, and Bosnian is very similar to them also um, that you know that um, Serbs understand everything Croats say and vice versa and of course they they hate each other for everything that they say I mean the Serbs and Croats hate each other Um, maybe things are a bit better now Uh, I I should hope so (laughs) Uh, it um, the most of the people in Belgrade where I was, they spoke English. Uh, you know, like when I was in Poland, I, I never lived in Poland, but when I was there, I mean, I was traveling around uh, that part of the world when I was living over there. I mean, for example, uh, very few people in Poland spoke English because all during the the years that they were part of the Iron Curtain, you know, um, they were they were taught Russian, for example, but they weren't taught English. In Serbia, people knew Russian. Although they weren't part of the Iron Curtain, really. Tito was too difficult to control. So um, he was ousted by, by Stalin very early on. They were, they were sort of allies of the Soviet Union, specifically of Russia. They, they felt very close to the Russians and vice versa because they're, they're an Orthodox country. Um, but um, uh, so I, you know, I had no problems, uh, really. I, I mean, I just, if people didn't speak English, um, you know, ordering food was pretty easy because I could just point to things I wanted and, they, you know, I got by with sign language. And a lot of people, um, when they overheard me speaking English, would immediately come over and try to talk to me because they wanted to use me for practice, which is common for um, English-speaking people in, in, in uh, other countries. You know, people will use you for, you know, because they're like, oh, I, I no speak English in a long time, you know. Um, um, but, uh, you know, that was generally a pleasure. You get to hear somebody's life story and, um, they were terribly friendly to me. And I mean, I was, you know, 
in the period that I lived there, when I went, moved back to work on my novel, um, well, no, when I was making the film in 2000, I think maybe I, I was probably one of maybe only, you know, maybe, you know, three Americans living anywhere in Belgrade, you know. Um, when I went back um, later, I would, I would, I was begin. I would see more Americans. Nobody who was living there. I think now there's kind of an expatriate community there, um, actually, because it's a big party town. So if you like to party, it might be you know a good place to hang your shingle. Um, I would see Americans there. I could always spot them like a mile away, a mile away. I mean, they just because the Serbs have their. They had a very distinct style. They tried to imitate Ameri- the American style a bit, but they could just never quite pull it off. They're much better looking than Americans overall. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they're really, really pretty startling looking people. A lot of the young, they don't age well <laughs> because no. because they live such unhealthy lives. <laughs> um, oh, it's big party. Yeah, that's what you were saying, big yeah. party town. That's. <laughs> they're very athletic, you know, they're, you know, um, like they're not, they're not, you don't find so many couch potatoes over there. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, um, yeah. Have you been back since? I have not. I really, um, I really fell in love with it. And, yeah. and I would love to have settled there. I mean, I had no alternative. I had to return to the U.S. I, I, um, I run out of money. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the people I knew there couldn't, uh, they didn't have jobs. All the, uh, you know, all my friends were younger than me. They were all living with their parents. Um, at the same time, they all had you know, wildly active sex lives. So I don't, you know, it's pretty funny that they're all living with their parents, uh, but uh, somehow they managed to make it work. Um, uh, Let's go to your place and not mine. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of people getting busy in cars, I guess. Uh, oh, yeah, like the same in Italy, you know. As I said, they're a lot like Italians, really. Because in Italy, the you'll st- you'll live with your parents a lot longer, I think. Sons particularly, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Sons are really uh, valued in Italy because so many so many young men were killed, you know, during during the uh, the wars, uh, Second World War and all that. So particularly, and you know, there's this whole sort of mother son thing there. The Serbs aren't quite like that, but I mean, just young people, period, tended to live with their parents, you know, um, and uh, until they get married, and even sometimes even afterward, you know, yeah. So what, so what was it that um, you were working on film when you were in Yugoslavia and you've been working in film for a while? What was it uh, that you were like, you know what, I got a novel in me. Let me, let me start working on this. Could you repeat the question? Oh, the God. Tony. <laughs> that means short memory. <laughs> um, what was the question? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. My short memory, too. No, what was it? So you're in Yugoslavia. What was it where you're like, you know what? Now is the time for me to write a novel. Did you like feel like you had a novel in you for years and were putting it off? Or was it just like, what, what was what was the spark for like, you know what? I got a book in me. I need to write this. Well, you know, I have been writing. I mean, I made a living for a long time writing screenplays and I mean I've been produced like an insane number of times as a screenwriter it's crazy I mean uh, we're talking feature films Uh, somebody who writes episodic television you know would have done you know maybe you know a lot of work um, equivalent to what I did in in films but these are feature like I wrote like 22 feature films just thing I didn't have a credit on all of them because I started using a pseudonym because they were all terrible Um, I mean sometimes the screenplay was okay or was sometimes even really good but but then it would you know become a lackluster film um it was just directed poorly and so um and um i was a pretty voracious reader um you know uh, i mean i i read you know all the the stuff that one is supposed to read if one is, is going to be well read, you know. Uh, I, you know, was very influenced by, you know, various people, you know, Jack Kerouac, uh, which I guess you're not supposed to say these days, maybe. Um, why, is that, why is that? I don't know. I don't, I don't think any, a lot of the people I, I, I liked, I think probably are, you know, are, have, um, are probably considered, uh, you know, um, uh, I can't think of the word, uh, reactionary maybe? I don't know. Um, 
Faulkner was a huge influence, you know, on me. But I'm from the South originally. Um, Hemingway, another reactionary uh, per- person to be considered reactionary. Now, I think he's very misunderstood. I think Kerouac's misunderstood. Um, I think even, even Bukowski. I think there was an article kind of recent. For some reason, I just read this kind of recently, and I don't even remember what it was. But like even about like his alcohol is you know where there's like he, people think he was drunk all the time, but he was like a functioning postal worker, and just you know he went on some benders. It's like I, even when I read like there's um there's a book Screams from the Balcony, his letters. And he's talking about to his friend, like, cut back on the booze, dude. That's just going to, like, fuck up your writing. And I'm just going, I was like, whoa, this isn't what I thought Bukowski was. Yeah, yeah, I think, well, he was incredibly prolific. Yeah. I mean, you can just see that by, just look at his, um, sorry, there was a hot rider going past. Um, uh, it all works its way in. Right. Uh, the Fast and the Furious. Um yeah, I, he was, yeah, I was about to say that I, I still have a few of the Black Sparrow editions of his books. I love those books. I love the look of those. I mean, Black Sparrow Press is one of my favorite presses. Yeah, it's just great. It's fantastic. And it would always have on the, the first page, um, you know, his, his um, bibliography. Is that what I should, is that the right term? Uh, also by Charles Bukowski. And it was, you know, all the, it filled up a whole page, you know, all the little chapbooks and poetry collections and all that. Um, so you can't be that prolific and be, um, you know, drunk all the time. Um, I, I wasn't terribly influenced by Bukowski, but I did, I do, do find him hilarious. And, um, and uh, you know, he's one poet that I can read with, with you know, enormous pleasure. I mean, I sometimes struggle with poetry. I do too. <laughs> yeah. No, he's poetry for people who don't read poetry. Yeah. Um, uh, but, you know, I can also see what some might object to uh, in, in the poetry, just in that it, it doesn't really invite, you know, second and third and fourth readings, a lot of it, you know. Right. Uh, like I'm reading Frank Stanford right now. Uh, he's a poet from Arkansas, killed himself in 1978, right? you know, and, the, and uh, his poems really, and, and you know, you, you want to go back to them and I mean oh, okay. I'll read one and then I'll go back and, and reread it like yeah, yeah. several times like right there on the spot because I'm just you know it's a it's, it's like you know piecing things together at a crime scene almost you know right. which is actually an apt way to talk about him because you know there's a lot of violence in his, his work huh. uh, he shot himself with the heart that's how he ended up dying yeah no it's amazing it's an amazing, it's an amazing story he's a Death Valley superstar really yeah. even though he you know he never made a well actually no he did he actually made a film he actually yeah he would love film I, I'm going to get onto a thing about Frank Stanford here, so I should I should just like yeah, let that yeah. go. But um, uh, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, we're just rapping, dude. We <laughs> it goes where it goes. Yeah. Uh, no, it, you know he's a recent enthusiasm of mine. But he did, um, you know, he um, moved to New York at one point, left Arkansas to live in New York just to see films, okay. and um, you know um, moved back, and uh, he was having love affairs left and right. In fact. Uh, one of my dead, a, a dead girlfriend of mine. <laughs> I think she had a thing with Frank Stanford, Stanford which is how I uh, um, uh, learned about him. Oh, wow. I think she did, but I'll never know because she's dead. I can't ask her now. You can't uh, ask him, so. No, I can't ask him either, but he was caught uh, by his wife. Uh, so he came home to find his wife and his mistress um, waiting for him with all his belongings packed. And um, they had this terrible argument that went on, the three of them, that went on for like at least a day. And he went into the bedroom and shot himself in the heart. Wow. 1978. Um, and uh, one of his uh, many lovers was Lucinda Williams. Oh, no way. Yeah. Her father had taught him uh, at uh, the University of Arkansas at Fayetteville, I think. Uh, her father is a poet. I, I have to read this guy. I'm, I'm totally fascinated. This is the first time I've heard of him. So Yeah, no, he's, well, he was kind of rediscovered in a big way a few years ago. Uh, there was a collection of his work uh, called What About This? I actually uh, uh, just picked up a copy at um, Skylight Books like earlier this, this year. I've been meaning to buy it for a long time and, uh, and immediately, you know, got pulled into it. Anyway, um, um, so, so, uh, to go back to, to way back, uh, you know, uh, this is this is like um, 
Wayne's World, you know, you know, we're going to go way back now uh, to the question. Um, so I had written a lot of terrible screenplays, and yet I was, you know, um, sort of a, a serious reader or a serious reader, uh, period. And um, um, I, I always promised myself that if I wasn't as fulfilled as I hoped to be by making films that I would, you know, come around to, to, to writing um, fiction. Um, and um, at the same time, I was going to a lot of shows here in L.A. and, um, you know, to, to see bands and stuff. And, um, and when I was making this film in Yugoslavia, I, I had this idea one night in my hotel room for a novel about music, about punk rock. And um, I had like the spark of the idea and it was just one of these things that just, um, it was sort of like a self-inflating raft. I mean, suddenly it just occupied the entire room, you know, almost. I just, I just, it just, I just saw the, the novel in its entirety. It was really, um, you know, it was, quite something almost mystical you know and 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 just how you know uh, complete the vision of it was i mean i just saw the whole thing you know within like a minute you know and it's it's a big novel um but then i had to figure out you know it's it's, it's gonna take a little while to find your way into the material it took me about a year to do that and then and then i tinker with the sentences for years and years you know after that uh, so, uh, and I had attempted, um, you know, I, I tried to write a novel once at around the age of 19, but I never went beyond like a couple of pages. I had no idea what I was doing, uh, then, and then I tried to write another one, um, and got close to finishing it. And then it just sort of all fell apart, you know, uh, because I just dove into that one with no, I just thought, well, it's just going to come, you know, I didn't really, I didn't really try to, to, um, map it out at all. And then it was too late, you know what I mean? When I, I the, the problems that developed were just, they were in the DNA of it, in a, in a sense. You know, there was no way to sort of go in and correct, correct it, uh, to put Band-Aids on it or anything like that. So I, I ultimately had to step away from that book. But I do think I, I kind of recycled the voice of it a little bit. I refined the voice and recycled the voice of that book for, you know. Actually, it had three different voices in it, but I, I took the best of them, and I, I kind of... Um, utilize that in, in band for life i think uh i think everyone has like a, a novelist has like the failed novel the novel that didn't work but it's almost the novel that we that's that's our school of learning how to write a novel is to write the bad novel and then that gets us to a novel where oh, okay now we just have a bad first draft but there's 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 something to work with here that might actually we'll, we'll have something yeah, what well, do you do? You have a novel like that, and you, oh, or yeah. or more than one? Yeah, you know, but my, my the first couple attempts at the novel were just atrocious. Um, I don't even think, I don't even think there was anything to scrap from the one before I did of Jesus Jerk. It was just like, just just shoot it in the air and um, you know, set it on fire. But it, but I it's there there was, there was I think there was a I was being very precious. And I think I had to get over being precious about being being a writer and being precious about storytelling and finally just throwing it all out there and just going, fuck it, this is it, and it's a dirty mess. And then I feel like that's that was more of a more of an and en- my entry into going, Okay, now we can go. I, but for some odd reason I had, I think there's a lot of ego involved too. I just had to get all of that like completely out of the way and then strip it down and then just be utterly disgusted with what I was doing, and then I was in the I was in the pocket, I guess. Yeah, I wish um, I wish that that had happened to me um, sooner, uh, both as an actor and as a writer. I had so much nonsense in my head. I mean, I know kids do almost always, but I just wish that you know I could have had the nonsense slapped out of me like a lot earlier um, as an actor and as a writer I mean I have no sense of romance whatsoever now about writing or yeah. being a writer yeah. and um, 
I mean, it's really a, the, the most loathsome business. I mean, every part of it is loathsome, actually. Um, I do it, um, I don't even know why I do it. Uh, uh, I guess partly because I'm a masochist. Uh, and um, I do think that there are, you know, if this is true of anyone. I mean, I think that there are things that, you know, if I never wrote them, they would never be written. Um, you know they're they're so peculiar to me i don't think anybody else would um would attempt the same material or 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 they certainly would never you know attempt my my own weird approach to it um you know like the way i write about uh, you know the new book there's a lot of uh, you know sort of what some might consider celebrity profiles in it but um you know, they're, they're, I have my own way of, of writing that kind of stuff. Um, and um, I write about people, in many cases, um, if I didn't write about them, I don't think, I don't know that anybody else would. Right. Um, so, uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, just trying to get people to read anything you've written, it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's horrifying, you know, it's like, dragging a boulder uphill and the writing process itself is just uh you know it's brutal yeah it's it's almost um it's almost like man i wish i had the same drive for architectural design or plumbing i i wish i wish there was just that part of me that was just like oh i love plumbing i wish i can plumb and then i would just have my truck and there would be the steady gig of plumbing yeah that's well that's that show, you know, that shows intelligence, Tony. Um, because, um, I mean, I always say that the only arts that really matter in the 21st century are, uh, by and large, the practical arts. Um, you know, I mean, everybody, you know, I, I, I mean, that's that's why you have this this sort of there's there's that accounts for the great popularity of, for example, cooking shows. You know, everybody wants to be a great cook. Everybody, you know. Um, design shows uh, you know there's this endless talk about what people are wearing and right. and how such and such looks on the red carpet so there's a great interest in fashion uh, cuisine um, uh, you know interior decoration uh, design of any kind I think that we're pe people nowadays are interested in design not art you know uh, arts way out as far as I'm concerned uh, nobody nobody gives a shit about art now so at the same time, man, yeah, there's just something sexy about uh, words on a page that actually move people. There's just something that still blows my mind that I could be moved by just reading something on a white page and I can move other people with the same thing. Uh, we're not moving a ton of people, but there's some movement. Yeah. <laughs> uh, am I, am I, uh, am I this weird positive thinker in this scenario here? <laughs> Well, maybe you move people. I don't. I don't know. Um, I, I I move them to other places. I don't. I have no idea where I'm. <laughs> Do you have a moving van? <laughs> I'd make more money. <laughs> I mean, you know, I I get compliments and stuff. I yeah, mean, yeah. people say, "Oh, I like your book." Um, uh, I don't know. It always feels a bit unreal to me. And yeah. frankly, you know, I read a lot, but. I, I don't I'm not moved by much I, I'm always looking for I mean like I did make, mention Frank Sanford he's you know um, uh, I, I have been moved by him although I moved I haven't been moved to tears or anything like that uh, I wish I, I welcome the experience I would love to have that happen to me it has happened to me it hasn't happened to me in a while I mean I I, I start books all the time and I'm like oh god this again yeah, yeah. you know yeah uh, you know who got me last year? Um, I, I never knew this. There's this author, Moya. He wrote a book called Senselessness. And I read that and I was just like, I was like, oh my God. I just, I had to, what do you call it? Make notes on every page. I'm just like, it's almost like you get those books once in a while where you're like, that's right. This is why I'm a writer. This is why I'm in this game. And there was this other guy, I think his last, his last name was Carrere. He wrote a book called The Mustache. And it's, it was translated from the French. Both these were translated. I think one's Argentinian, one's French. But I read The Mustache, and it was just, it blew my mind. And it, it, 
it's about once a year I can get my mind blown and then I'm just like that's right that's why that's why we're in this plus I get to do this podcast which is always fun because I get to talk to writers yeah um, well I'll have to uh, listen to this when it goes live because I didn't uh, jot down these titles while you were uh, uh, talking about them um, well I'm gonna li- well, I have to listen to get your uh, your suggestions as well so um, I have no suggestions, Tony. No, no, you had them earlier, the poet the guy. I'm getting that poet guy. Oh, um, yeah, Frank Stanford. Uh, what about this? Uh, yeah, I, I have to say about that, though. I mean, it's, it's, it's a collection of um, all of his, you know, well, except he did one really, really long epic poem. Um, and it, I guess, was considered too long to include in this book, so they just do excerpts from it. Um, and I read um, the first uh, book. Uh, I finished that one. It's called The Singing Knives. And that was um, really remarkable. Although by the end of it, I, I was a little bit less enthused. And then I began the, the second collection. I'm, I, that's why I'm not, I put the book down because I, I didn't find the poems in it as, as good as the first. Um, so I'm hoping that... Um, um, you know, some of the later collections in this collection uh, will be, uh, will, you know, where, where the quality will come back up again. This second uh, collection, I don't know, it just didn't feel as, um, uh, I mean, because some, the, the, some of the poems in the, in the Singing Knives, um, you know, th- there's a sort of narrative, an underlying narrative that's, that's, that's going on. I mean, um, they're, they're narrative poems, and the, and the, and the, um, there are characters that are sort of recurring. They're, you know, they're, they're, you know, you'll you'll see the same name like coming up. You know, like it'll be in one poem, and then like three poems later, it'll be the same name again. It'll be like, oh, so you're you're sort of, you know, like it's like one of those, uh, uh, you know, things you see in a in a police movie. You know, like the the um, the map with the, uh, the the yarn tied from. You know, like so you're you're so. So it was a bit like that, you know, and 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 uh, it the, the puzzle solver in me was kind of intrigued, you know, by this book. In addition, it just the guy just uses um, just uses words in a way I've I've never read anyone who uses uh, words quite like this. Just really, uh, it's really something. I mean, the the uh, just very unusual uh, verbs and nouns. Uh, I I was constantly having to consult um, a dictionary. Uh, which I don't mind doing. I mean, you know, sometimes it's a little, yeah. I mean, but, you know, but it's a little bit of a pain to have to kind of constantly stop in the middle of, you know, you're like, oh, what the fuck is this, you know? Oh, oh, that. That's what it is. Okay. Um, but with this one, I didn't, you know, mind it so much, you know, but I had to do it quite a bit. Uh, right. Well, it, it's, I guess if it's, a, um, what do you call it? If it's someone just, like, blowing, blowing out their... Uh, there. Oh, I know this many words. I would have put them all in this poem instead of uh, organic. Um, more, it seems like it's organic and it's supposed to be in there. Then it's. What was I saying? Well, no, I, I think it in this case it's because first of all, um, I I didn't get the sense that he was showing off all that much, right. uh, but um, first of all, he was educated by Mox. And um, he refers to things, uh, you know, having to do with, with monks and monasteries uh, um, that have, you know, very, you know, very specific words attached to them. And also, he worked as a land surveyor, and he had a really intimate knowledge um, of, uh, you know, types of trees and, and, and animals and... and uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, just things re- related to nature, and so, for example, one word I remember a word that came up right away. It was gar, G-A-R, huh. and it came up. You know, like first time I read it, I was like, I'm just going to move past this, and then it came up again. Like it's a fish. It's a kind of fish. Really? Yeah, huh. I I finally looked it up, but I was like, oh, um, but um, it's a it's kind of just an interesting thing that he does. It's um, you know, very often when people attempt to do that sort of Huck Finn voice, you know, writers do that, you know, well, I reckon I gone down to the store and I done talked to, you know, like, I'm like, oh, fuck off, you know, 
I know you went to the Iowa school. You know, stop pretending like you're Farmer John down at the, the feed store, you know. Um, but but I, I completely accept it with this guy. Um, it, it really works. I mean, I you know, I've accepted it with other writers, like Yodora Welty, that famous story, Why I Love at the P.O. Like, she writes that whole voice and that kind of, uh, you know, that small-town voice, yeah. you know. But it's authentic. Uh, what? It's authentic. The, the, it I, feels that way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Although he grew up, he, he had some money growing up, but his father, uh, I think his father uh, built levees, and he would spend the summer months in these work camps uh, where he hung out with all these uh, you know uh, you know really impoverished kids and uh, kind, of, kind of ran around with these kids during the summer and I, he just picked up their, you know the way they speak and he just had a great ear for language I think yeah. he's only 29 when he killed himself you know damn that that yeah, yeah. blows my mind it blows my, the whole suicide thing blows my mind no matter what age it's, just, it's a mind-boggling uh, thing well particularly if it's if it's a young person, right? Yeah. Even older, it kind of freaks me out when um, I hear, like, you know, people in their 40s do it. And I'm just like, what? Are you kidding? I thought I was supposed to I thought I thought was supposed to know everything by then and be okay, you know? But, hey, then we got Hemingway in his 60s, right? It's, it's, op- it's open for all ages. It's an all-ages affair if you'd like to join. Well, there's a lot of elderly suicide, actually. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, because uh, it's hard, you know. Yeah. Um, and the and the loneliness there too. I probably they if they don't have their friends, they've kind of lost it their love their loved ones or whatever. Well, loneliness and poverty. I mean, uh, you know, uh, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I think we're going to have an awful lot of suicide in the U.S. Uh, going forward. Uh, in fact, I think the numbers have been uh, rising uh, because uh, you know because uh, I don't know how the hell anybody is you know I don't know how I'm going to live uh, you know uh, as I as I creep ever closer you know to uh to the abyss well well hopefully it'll be the shitty people that kill themselves and then we'll eat their meat yeah someone that green is people <laughs> dude man that, that we'll end on that thanks so much no, for no, being on the show end on that tony what, no oh okay there's one thing we have to talk about i'm yes. sorry i have to preempt oh, this yes 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 now you see did you hear that everybody did you hear that oh yes 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 all right i'm gonna let you begin so we're at the alcove in Los Feliz, and there's just something here that just feels, I don't know, comforting yet off. Okay, well, Tony is being coy, everyone, uh, because here's the thing. When he told me, you know, when we first, we, we actually, this all happened because I bumped into him uh, one day at a place up the street, and... Um, and he was like, "Oh, I do this podcast. You know, maybe you'll have, I'll have you know, have you on the podcast." And I was like, "Great!" You know, I had a book that just came out. Obviously, I want to be on as many podcasts as possible. Uh, I've known Tony for a while. Uh, anyway, um, uh, we met first in San Francisco, where he used to live. I came up to uh, to do a reading from uh, from my novel, the novel we spoke about earlier. So anyway, uh, then I, I didn't think it would actually happen. He sent me he sent me an email. Uh, saying, hey, uh, let's do this. And he mentioned the name of the place, uh, The Alcove. And I wrote back and said, oh, The Alcove, that's, um, that's, uh, was the, uh, the uh, headquarters of the Moonies back in the day. Uh, and this was a fact unknown to you, right? Um, and uh, so I don't know if this was the true... Uh, um, headquarters of the church i think it was just the recruitment center yeah um and i looked and i looked online too and i think they one of his uh one of his marriages to many people was actually like right here if i if 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 i remember that's very possible i mean he was famous uh for among other things marrying large quantities of strangers to each other yeah um, I, th- I think that there was one mass wedding he ha- held at uh, Madison Square Garden, I believe it was. It was literally thousands of people they just met. Um, so he was kind of the ultimate computer dating service uh, before there were computers. But of course, he was, you know, he was Jesus incarnate. Um, and, you know, his wife was Mrs. Jesus. Uh, and so, you know, he's divine. Therefore, he, he was like, okay, you two. Um, I don't even know who you are, but of course I know, I, I sort of really do know who you are, uh, because I'm Jesus, uh, and so I'm going to, uh, 
to uh, assign you to, to be the husband of her, and she's going to be your wife. And, you know, so literally they were all dressed identically. And, and uh, Mr. and Mrs. Jesus stood before them and, uh, and, and did the honors. God, we, I got to find out how many of those people are still married and if it worked. Because wouldn't, wouldn't it be funny if there was like some real huge success stories and they did fall in love and they're still together? Yeah, I don't think it would be as funny as um, a very high incidence of uh, uh, spousal murder. Oh, that would be funny too. We- <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm glad that I, I'm uh, sitting here with somebody whose humor is as dark as my own. Duke, man. Okay, now thank you so much for being on the show. Fantastic, and I appreciate it. Well, thank you. I'm I'm uh, the appreciative one. Duke Haney on Drinks with Tony. Check out his books, Subversia, Band for Life, and his latest book out now on Delancey Street Press, Death Valley Superstars, Occasionally Fatal Adventures in Filmland. Stay tuned for upcoming conversations on Drinks with Tony from fantastic authors like J. Ryan Stradle, Chris L. Terry, Bucky Sinister, Patrick O'Neill, Rob Roberge, and so much more. Thanks for listening. I will see you next week.